Well, good morning. It's great to be here this morning. It's my privilege to be able to open up God's Word and, and share with you this morning as we continue our sermon series uh, talking about the core values of new life. And today we'll be talking about the core value of godly servant leadership. So a leader can be defined as someone who has influence. Here's the reality. I have influence with several circles of people. Some of those roles I didn't really proactively seek out because I wanted to be a leader. My 21-year-old self, I don't think, was primarily thinking about leading uh, a wife and family when we got married. And my 22-year-old self, I don't think, was thinking about leading a growing family of a couple of girls when we had our first baby. Just not probably what was primarily on my mind. And now even more recently, uh, we add to the, to the mix and what I think is a privilege and, and fun to, to add in being a father-in-law and the dad to a married person and a, and a married family, really. Um, things that, that you didn't really ask for or look for, but as a part of life, um, come upon you and you, you respond and all of a sudden you find yourself in this, in this new position. Um, so really... Really pretty cool. So I'm curious, anybody else find themselves as a leader or an influencer in an unexpected way? Yeah, any, any roles that pop into your mind that you didn't really expect that all of a sudden you found yourself in? All of them. All of them. <laughs> all of them. You, didn't, you didn't show up wanting to be a leader, but all of a sudden, um, in, in so many instances, whether it's in the workplace or, or school, or home, I'm an influencer. I'm a leader. Now, there are roles that I did seek out, or others asked me to consider based on my abilities and gifts, you know, leadership roles that I have here at New Life, or some leadership roles that I have at work. So not all of them were, uh, were, were unexpected or, or not desired. But the reality is that every single one of us uh, in this room has influence with several circles of people. You know, all of us, whether it's life group or D group or our team at work, neighbors, even friends we hang out with. We, we have influence and we spur them on or they watch us and are spurred on towards how they will conduct themselves in positive or negative ways. Uh, a quick example, uh, right here in our church family. Uh, Katie DeBoard. She is a, a member of the uh, cafe team. Sets up, makes coffee, and cleans up every single week. And so she doesn't, she doesn't quote-unquote lead that team, but recently she was hearing some comments about how there have been some coffee grounds in the hot water. The, you know, the hot water, it's for tea and hot chocolate. So Katie could have ignored that comment. She uh, could have said to herself, I hope the leader fixes that. Or she could have told the leader to fix that. Or she could have done what I heard that she actually did do. And that was coming up with a way of labeling a couple of dispensers as being dedicated to hot water. And then she did this, which was huge. Hello, fellow cafe workers. I marked two uh, 
cafes. I'm not sure what that word is. It must crafts. There you go. <laughs> with uh, with blue dots. Can we use these exclusively for water? I've had some feedback about coffee grounds in the water. Thank you, exclamation mark, smiley face. And thank you for your serving. Sincerely, Katie. P.S. Can we leave this note for the next team? Thanks. So she noticed something and her initiative in noticing and owning the problem, devising a solution, solution, taking the time, she could have just ignored it. To solve the problem, she risked bearing the opinion of others. You know, maybe somebody else had another thought of how to fix it or whatever, but she said, no, I'm going to take care of it. And in doing that, change the situation to a preferable future. No coffee grounds. In the tea, no coffee grounds in the hot chocolate. Um, great job. Great job, Katie. And so this is a great example of this core value of godly servant leadership. The way we describe it is that we are deeply committed to leading like Christ, following his example of servant leadership, humility, and self-sacrifice. So the reason for having this core value is twofold. We want our church to carry out the mission God has for us. And throughout Scripture and how we've seen it in our own lives being played out, the spiritual health of God's people has hinged on obedient leaders. Secondly, every single one of us in some way leads. And we want to keep this topic on the forefront to equip and empower our church family to lead as an act of worship. At the end of the day, we all need to face this question. If I am a leader, which we all have influence, how am I to lead? So the big idea today that I want you to write down is to lead like Christ, we must serve like Christ. To lead like Christ, we must serve like Christ. So if you turn your Bibles with me today to John chapter 13, we're going to start in verse 1 and read through 17 and share an account of Jesus and his disciples in the upper room during the Last Supper. So a lot of things going on here, um, you know, just as we think about Jesus and the impact and the events of that week. But a pretty important one happened here in, in John chapter 13. Let's, let's read together verses 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper 
he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed to his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So here we've got the disciples and their rabbi and their teacher, and he was washing their feet. First century road conditions make, uh, make washing feet and at communal meals pretty important. Um, in that day, the, the tables oftentimes were real low. And so picture these full-grown men kind of kneeled down, leaning over on the side, maybe crisscross applesauce or whatever, and, and their feet were in play, right? They've been out on the, the dirty ground. They've been out on the roads. They're, you know, think sweaty sandals, silty coatings on their feet. You know, up in that upper room, maybe the aroma of a few farm animals. You've got a lot going on on their feet. Um, I just think about a few of us, Craig and Srini and Fawny and me sort of sitting at a table like that. I'm like, no thanks. <laughs> no thanks. So the feet were in play. Um, nasty, no doubt. Uh, usually the host accommodated uh, for, the, for feet washing. But in this instance, you know, it's kind of a special situation. They maybe didn't quite know who exactly, um, uh, you know, had this house. It was short notice, remember the story and all that. Um, bottom line is that at least the disciples hadn't thought to plan for this and to take care of it for one another or for Jesus, uh, perhaps because there wasn't, there wasn't a servant there and ready to serve them because that was a typical role. Um, for a non-Jewish slave, actually. That was generally who would take on this role as, a, as, as feet washing. Uh, but ultimately, of course, there, there was 
a servant present. They just didn't quite realize it. So um, up on the screen is, is there a, is a rendering of this act of service. It's the only one that I've seen that depicts Jesus with, with no top garment, being bare-chested. And this actually is consistent with the text. Um, as you maybe notice, he removed his outer garment before making this move to wash their feet. This may have added to the disbelief and discomfort um, that was happening that we heard Peter especially have as he was doing this to them because their teacher and their rabbi was not only serving like this, but he was not hesitating to, to uncover, increasing this level of vulnerability that, that Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, was having with these people that, that he was caring for, loving, and serving in this way. It's a little hard for me to imagine, even in a, in a current day setting, for a, a meeting with a respected colleague in ministry or business to, to do this in the middle of a meal or as a meal was being prepared. And so we we ask ourselves, you know, why did, why did Jesus do this? And really straight from the passage, you've got four reasons that, that jump out at you. In the second half of verse 1, uh, it's recorded this way. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. <clears throat> he demonstrated some sincere, intense love for the disciples. For some of them, they were literally his family. But they were also his co-workers. They were his friends, his students, his community. And despite their flaws, he loved them. You know, we saw over, see over and over in Scripture how he, he, uh, he teaches them, he corrects them, he rebukes them. Uh, but he did so in an extreme loving, loving way. Secondly, it was a demonstration of an extreme act of humility. Uh, in, in verse 4 and 5, you can imagine him sitting there, kind of like it's depicted. It, it describes it after the meal had started, but it's kind of hard to tell if it was just when the meal was ready or as it was about to start. But one way or another, the food was ready. The table was set. It was time to eat. And perhaps if it had started, people had already dug in. And all of a sudden, their leader stands up, you know, unties, throws the, the outer cloak to the side, likely bare-chested, wraps a towel around his waist, goes, gets the water, pours the water out, and no doubt says, okay, Who's first? I mean, this is a major timeout in the middle of what we think of as one of the most critical situations and critical times of, of all of Jesus' life, the night before that he would go to go to the cross. And he's timeout in the middle of the meal to take, I don't know, to go through 12 people of feet washing. It must take at least a half hour. 
This is a significant, unexpected act. And Jesus, you know, what, what do we stop Thanksgiving meal for? Or a, a birthday party meal? Do we ever push pause for a half hour to do anything once the meal's ready? No. No, when the meal's ready, you eat. It's, it's part of the whole, whatever you're celebrating, or whatever the event is, it's, it's, all, it's, you know, it's a hospitality thing. You're respecting the people that prepared it to eat it when it's hot and all of this. But in this moment, Jesus himself thought it was priority enough to time out and I'm going to serve you in a way that you won't expect this. And frankly, you're not even going to understand today. But it's going to take a half hour and we're going to do it. Jesus demonstrated this ultimate act of humility and priority by doing it, but he did every step too. He got up and took care of it. Scripture describes that he did it. He just didn't get the ball rolling and let somebody else take care of the other seven once he had the first five done. Jesus, by every indication, washed their feet and not only washed the feet of those that loved him and were in him, but washed the feet of Judas as well. Another reason Jesus did this in verses 6 through 11 makes it very clear that Jesus signifies the spiritual washing that can only be accomplished by him. When Peter, in his discomfort, refuses the service, Jesus responds with, If I don't wash you, you have no share in me. This may have indicated two things. One, Peter was a student of Jesus, so if Peter just simply refuses a request in that day of his rabbi or his teacher, that could have been grounds for his dismissal from the group. Um, But it also indicates this figurative relationship to the gospel, that if you don't receive Christ's washing, you are not saved. Peter quickly changed his tune, you know, fully understanding the implications of losing his spot as a student of Jesus, and perhaps understanding the salvation implications, he immediately asked for Jesus to wash not just his feet, but his hands and his head. And then Jesus, I'm sure, and you know, maybe at least on the inside, sort of shaking his head, um, you know, says that... Um, you know, you're not going to understand now, but you will later. And they want to illustrate that, that it's a moment in time when you are cleansed, fully washed from unrighteousness. You know, for us, it's when we recognize our brokenness through sin. We repent. We believe God miraculously takes our sin and puts it on Jesus. And Jesus' righteousness and puts it on us. For Jesus, uh, for us, Jesus has died. For them, Jesus was going to die the death that they deserved, that we deserved. And God was going to raise him from the dead to defeat sin that we would be saved. That's the moment that Jesus is talking about. But in this illustration, the point Jesus was making is that you don't need to be saved every day.
Every day we do need the Holy Spirit to cleanse our feet, though, to perform maintenance. You know, this, this idea that there are areas that we're continuing to grow in, that we fail in, that he's maturing us, purifying us. It's this process of sanctification that we walk out by the power of the Holy Spirit and the support of others, the support of the church. So when we serve like Christ, it reminds us of Christ's sacrifice of the cross. Um, it's almost like communion. You know, in this instance, Jesus said, I served you. And it's because if you don't take this service from me, you don't have a share in me. Remember the work that I'm going to do for you when I go to the cross. And so when we serve, we serve like Jesus served. It reminds us of what he did at the cross. And lastly, once in a while, Jesus spoke in parables. But as you look in, chapter, in verse 12, the second half of it, Jesus actually took the time and words to say, do you understand what I have done to you? He didn't want this to be a thought that was missed on the disciples. He performed this act to spur the humble servant leadership and community amongst this group when he was gone. And I think my favorite moment of the whole um, you know, discussion that he was having after he had washed their feet was the end of verse 17. When he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Don't just hear this. Don't just experience it. Don't let this be a fleeting moment during a meal that then you get to finish eating. If you hear these things, if you know these things, do them. Um, of course, every, every gospel account doesn't record the exact same details which, of, of these events, which from an apologetic standpoint actually lends credibility to the Bible and that you've got different people seeing different things, recording different details. And given that Jesus had just made this plea to the disciples to do this, recognize my service, uh, do it uh, for others, recognize that you are not greater than, than the master because you also can serve. If we jump over for a moment into Luke chapter 22, verse 24, we pick up, the same chain of events here, the same events, different author, different um, items being noticed. But what we're going to read here probably came right on the heels of the foot washing and right on the heels of the implementation of the Last Supper. And here we find something happening. Verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Oh dear, oh dear. Jesus had just gone. He'd just taken a half hour to wash these guys' feet. They'd, they'd finished the meal. At the end of the meal, you know, we practice this routinely. He talks about how to remember him from the Last Supper uh, by doing it regularly. He no sooner gets all this off his breath and a dispute rises about who 
was going to be the greatest. You know, it's, it's remarkable, but don't we kind of find ourselves struggling with this too? If we do something, don't we want some appreciation at times? Don't we want our backs patted once in a while? Um, if we go out of our way to, to take care of a problem, um, and sometimes it feels good to attain a position or, or be given a title. Well, here was Jesus' response in verses 25 through 27. He said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. So these guys were essentially leaders. They were heathen leaders of the Egyptians and Syrians of the day. And essentially they posed as friends of the people, but in actuality, uh, many of them were tyrannical leaders. Um, of course, we, don't, we know nothing about that um, in our day and age. Uh, but Jesus went on to say that in verse 26, but not so with you. You're not going to lead this way. You, you really don't just want to be the greatest. You are different than these guys that call themselves benefactors. He said, rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? Of course it is. The honored sit at the table and the servants serve him. That's what happens at at meals of respected leaders, not that night. They all sat at the table. The rabbi among them and the rabbi stood up and served. The greatest stood up and stood up and served. And Jesus was saying, you don't want to be like the benefactors. You want to be like me. I am greater but I love by serving. To lead like Christ, I must serve like Christ. To lead like Christ, we must serve like Christ. So how does leading like Christ play out at New Life? It starts with our elder team. Um, In the In in following the biblical example, we have a team of qualified elders that God has given a special desire to lead this church family. Uh, Today, I'm not going to say much about qualifications, but their qualifications for elder are listed in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And uh, we pay a lot of attention to them when it comes time to, uh, to selecting and implementing a new elder or a new deacon. We pay a lot of attention to that. So it's worth knowing what they are. Uh, There's just not time today to cover all of that. But our church leadership or governance structure gives our elders a unique opportunity to lead like Jesus before we ever leave an elder team meeting. Um, I'll kind of start to paint a picture of this by describing what we are not up alongside of some of the things that we are and that we do do. Um, one, we, are, we do not have one pastor and a board that oversees him. We don't, we don't have that at all. That, that's like nothing like what we have. Um, we also don't have paid pastors that are in authority and lay elders that have lesser authority. Uh, we do have a team of qualified elders that differ in roles, 
Uh, but we each have equal authority, no matter if we're uh, paid as an employee or a lay elder. Uh, in our current situation, Paul Dutoma and Eric Kitchen are paid as employees, and they've dedicated their lives for availability for vocational ministry. It's what they've done their entire careers, and they've got the educational and experience uh, that goes along with it that makes them you know, greatly qualified uh, to do so. Um, Greg Hesterman and I um, are, are not compensated by the church, as we have vocational work outside the setting of the church. Greg is the leader of the Ohio Air National Guard and a brand new realtor. If you need to buy a house, go Greg. Um, and, and myself as a, as a chemist and a program manager at Battelle. You know, considering that Paul and Eric have more availability, they take on roles of ministry that take additional time. Um, but each of us have the same authority and responsibility for overseeing the church under the authority of Christ. Now, many of you know all four of us and are fully aware that we're very different people. And as um, a part of leading your life, we have conversations on many different topics. And so I wanted to um, take you behind the, the, you know, the, behind the closed doors of a meeting for a second. And some observations that I've made is that, you know, we have a, uh, generally speaking, a smart elder, a hard-headed elder, a right elder, and a nice elder. Um, I'll, I'll leave it up to you to assign them. Um, but but all, joking, all joking aside, um, each of us can and do at times take on any one of these attributes um, and other attributes, depending on the level of awareness, uh, the interest, the passion about a particular topic. Um, and these instances do give us special opportunity to humble ourselves um, before one another. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to mention is that we don't really bring items to the table and vote. Um, we, we take the extra time and we humbly discuss and uh, demand of ourselves we reach unity before moving forward with decisions. Uh, there's a, a two short passages from a book called Biblical Eldership by Alexander Strzok that I wanted to read that I think depicts how we function um, effectively that might help you know, all of us understand the, the huge um, part of, of what it is to serve as an elder. In addition to shepherding others with a servant spirit, the elders most, must humbly and lovingly relate to one another. They must be able to patiently build consensus, compromise, persuade, listen, handle disagreement, forgive, receive rebuke and correction, confess sin, and appreciate the wisdom and perspective of others, even those with whom they disagree. They must be able to submit to one another, speak kindly and gently to one another, be patient with their fellow colleagues, defer to one another, and speak their minds openly in truth and love. One other brief passage where the author says, and we align with him completely on this, I believe that traditional single church pastors would improve their character and ministry if they had genuine peers to whom they were regularly accountable and with whom they worked jointly. Most pastors are not multi-talented leaders, nor are they well-suited to singularly lead a congregation effectively. They have personality flaws and talent deficiencies that cause them and the congregation considerable vexation. 
When placed in a council of pastors, however, a pastor's strengths make important contributions to the church and his weaknesses are covered by the strengths of others. On a personal note, I don't think there is another avenue and role that I've played in my life that God hasn't used more to humble me, to grow me, and to teach me um, how he would want me to be as a follower of him than um, than sitting on our elder team. And so it's been, you know, one of the great honors of my life to be able to do so. We certainly aren't perfect, but we are committed to unity within our team and on the path forward for our church. We also have deacons at New Life, um, which are the other declared church office in the Bible. They have similar biblical qualifications, but their role is more focused on serving the body in hands-on ways. Andy Shimp and Paul Johnson serve as our deacons right now. Among other things, Andy works closely with New Life's finances, and Paul uh, does so many things pertaining to our facility and ministries and, um, and, and lots of stuff. These guys are just invaluable in freeing up our elder team to focus on prayer and the study of the word. So to lead like Christ at New Life, we must serve like Christ. As a general guide, <clears throat> the elders take their example from Jesus' service in John 13 that we've just uh, talked about. And also our direction and guidance from Peter's exhortation in 1 Peter chapter 5, where he says to shepherd the flock with eagerness, proving to be examples. In doing that, we try our best to influence all the others, other leaders at New Life uh, with a similar charge. There's, a, there's an acrostic called LETS. Lead, equip, teach, and shepherd. Think of life group leaders, D group leaders, ministry directors, and, and leaders, team leaders, Missions trip leaders, they're all chosen based on their faithfulness to Christ, their availability to serve, their credibility with others, and their humility to lead well. We encourage and try to set the example for them to, first, by leading, to pray for our church family and our leaders. Encouraging our leaders to pray for those under their circle of influence. By the grace of God, we work and encourage to live a life of growing holiness, leading like Christ, thinking of ourselves less. When in positions of authority, taking the posture of a servant. When in positions of a servant, serving one another faithfully. We also prioritize equipping, uh, equipping our people to love God, to love people and make disciples, to release our church body for ministry and for the gospel. Example is the gospel uh, conversations training we did in the last few weeks. That was just, it was a training that happened on the end in the afternoons, but we brought it into the sermon setting. We took it into life groups. It was a great example of being, being equipped. Um, who has found that helpful since we've done that in the past several weeks? Who has had opportunity to at some level incorporate it into a conversation? Great. That's great. I did too this week. I didn't take it all the way home, but I, I, I took her, her part way in a conversation I had in my office. So I'm, I'm growing in that. It's on the top of my mind. So I'm glad that others are starting that process too. 
Um, we prioritize teaching, the perfectly seeking an accurate understanding of biblical truth for growth, whether it's in the setting of Sunday morning in this room or with toddlers and children's ministry, um, Sunday nights with students' ministry or during the week at life groups. Teaching is an incredibly important aspect of opening up God's Word and teaching it accurately. And lastly, but far from, from uh, least in priority, is shepherding. Walking through life as brothers and sisters, counseling with families, dealing with health concerns, relationship challenges, marriages, premarital counseling, and many other examples. In each of these things, I think of Shelley Butch and Sarah McLaughlin in children's ministry, taking the time during their weeks and evenings to coordinate schedules, fill in when people can't make their time of service, organizing biblical curriculum to teach our kids, never with complaint. I think of Amy, who works hard to have our social media presence be consistent and impactful and has built an active women's ministry team. I think of Levi, Steve, Kara, Trevor, Ben, and others um, in the evenings with our student ministry uh, on Sunday evenings, you know, taking the time, sacrificing time with their families to influ- provide an influence to our kids who, when they're going to, to school and running around doing whatever they're doing, their influences are far from Christ-centered in most cases. In each of these situations, each of these people are thinking of their desires less than God's mission, setting the examples for others. To lead like Christ we must serve like Christ. As we've talked about, leading is influence. So I want to talk for a second to the 22-year-olds to 29-year-olds in here. Not a lot of them right now. Um, a few. But we have a lot of them in our church. And I also want to talk to the 30 to 40-year-olds I want you to ask yourself, who is your circle of influence? What person or people in your workplace and community do you see leading like Christ with self-sacrifice and humility that you can model your life after? Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 24 says, Bond service, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service of people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Your generation will be the leaders of the future. You'll either be leading people like Christ or end up being led by people without a Christ-centered focus. What could the impact be if in 10 to 15 years, the workplaces and political offices were filled with Christians leading like Christ by serving like Christ? I encourage you also in the context of the church. Start to view yourself as a future leader of new life. Experts say that only 10% of people are natural born leaders but that another 20-plus percent are able to learn and be very effective leaders in almost any setting that they're driven towards. The church needs leaders that will lead like Christ. Are you being an influencer and a leader in your life group? Are you there on time and regularly? Are you bringing snack, providing meals to those in need? 
you know, offering to take some of the load from the leader? Are you con- considering and desiring to lead a life group? There is no rule that we can't have a 26-year-old life group leader, a 28-year-old deacon, a 34-year-old elder. Let's start having the conversation. What would the path towards a ministry leader or deacon or elder look like for you? We need more leaders in this age range to aspire to these roles and offices in our church. New life needs to be led not only this year, five years from now, but 15 years from now, 25 years from now, 50 years from now. Wouldn't it be cool at that time to be led by ministry leaders, deacons, and elders that settled down and built their families here, learning to lead like Christ for the benefit of the kingdom? It gives me goosebumps to think about when I put names and faces on the people that may be leading new life 25 years from now. Now, to those that are in our 40s and above. The sober reality is that our life here on earth is close to or over half over. How are we going to finish? We have decades of experience in multiple aspects of life. Parenting, business, ministry, relationships, family. How can we maximize that and lead like Christ for every day we have left. If God has given you or or us any sort of an inkling to lead or serve in a different way, or you're wondering what type of ministry might fit you well, let's make it a priority to talk to an elder, talk to Steph, talk to somebody who's in the ministry you are thinking about, and we'll build a path for you to get plugged in and serve like Christ. Just last week, I was standing outside here after the service, after Trevor's Uh, sermon, and Jean Moeller came up to me, and she said, I was inspired today, and I'm getting plugged in. And yesterday, you saw her picture up there, right in the first part of the service. She was out at the paint wall engaging with kids yesterday, after being inspired Sunday, and making a contact with somebody after church. Praise God for that. That's what I'm talking about. And by the way, there's no rule against a 69-year-old deacon or a 77-year-old elder. Nobody gets a pass. You're seeking out what God has for you in your life and leadership. So godly servant leadership inside and outside of the church, it raises our standing in the eyes of the unbeliever. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, I hope that you will understand that our church family wants to live and lead in the example of Christ, mostly so that you will consider the free gift of salvation that Jesus is offering you. We'd want to talk more with you about that today, if you're up for it. For the rest of us, leadership is influence and we all have it. When Jesus picked his disciples, he did not have intense job interviews and major resume reviews. He went directly to the fishermen, the tax collectors, the people that were just out working and said, follow me. And even as we talked about earlier, 
in John chapter 13, Jesus served them in significant ways, and sometimes they didn't get it right away. It took some time, and it took to see what Jesus was all about. But he used them. He changed the world. He built the church. And we are a result of their work today. He'll give us the tools to serve, and he'll give us the tools to lead. We just need to respond to him. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, I'm grateful for today. I'm grateful for your church. It's a people that love you and want to serve. And we ask that you would continue to empower us, forgive us when we are lazy, forgive us when we have self-centered desires but equip us so that we can go and do your work. Equip our church family at New Life that we might go and do your work. Equip us with with leaders that are desiring impact of you. Give desire in the hearts of men and women that desire to lead like you. Give us each person that is needed to accomplish the task that you have in store for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.